Hello and welcome back to Resting Sad Face. I'm glad you're here. I know it's been a while. Um, For some context, I have been trying to stay more present in my last little bit of college. Um, You know, with finals ramping up and getting all the graduation things together. um, I've just really been focusing on that and... Anyone who understands the last few weeks of college knows that they are probably the most chaotic and hectic and you're trying to figure out job stuff and it's just a lot. So my mental capacity has been drained, therefore I have not been doing the podcast and blog. But I can tell you that I'm coming back with somewhat of a special episode Um, This is not going to be like the normal ones where I read the blog post and then add some commentary on it. Um, It's actually going to take quite a different approach. So this actually is my last assignment of college ever. Um, For those who haven't read the blog post associated with with this episode, um... Basically, I took a masculinities class this semester. It was super interesting. It definitely challenged me in so many ways, challenged my understanding of things, um, and was really heavy in the reading aspect, which, you know, as a writer, I enjoyed. But our final project was to explore some kind of topic in relation to masculinities. So, As someone who has been a victim of sexual violence, that was kind of the first thing that popped into my head of something that I wanted to explore, something that I wanted to research, um, really trying to like dig into the nuances and complexities of masculinity and how that relates to rape culture and whatnot. Um, So yeah, anyone listening, you are now listening to my final project of college for my masculinities class but i thought it tied in really nicely with the things that i explore on resting sad face um and is honestly kind of making me really sentimental because everything i wrote in the blog post for this um in terms of you know big experiences i've had in college a lot of them, in a way, relate to my understanding of sexual violence. has been a huge part of my college experience. And unfortunately, it's a huge part of a lot of people's college experience. So I think I come here to try and find, you know, some kind of answer for how we can do better. Um, and like I said before, I may even leave with more questions and less answers. But nevertheless, I wanted to explore this topic from an academic and intellectual standpoint, which I'm really excited to do, and I'm glad you're listening along with me. And if anyone would like to see that background, um, read that background that I mentioned on the blog, you can find that in my Instagram bio, and you can also go to um, Ronnie Simon with three ends at the end of simon.com slash resting sad face. All right, let's get started. What is consent? 
Where do we draw the line between yes and no? What are we actually taught when it comes to consent at a young age? And how are young children understanding the depths of what consent means? Is it the responsibility of the parents to engage their children in this kind of discussion? Or schools? How do we as a society work on that gray area that leaves so many young people shamed and guilted for their own sexuality? These are questions that I've contemplated for years, trying to understand how sexual violence affected my life. This very blog came into fruition in an attempt to understand the nuances of sexual relations and hopefully elicit some kind of voice for myself that I felt like I didn't have for years. Unfortunately, what I came to understand is that sexual violence grasps its ugly hand in the intricacies of our society and gender relations. It intertwines with a whole web of power relations, inequality, communication inefficiencies, and emotional immaturity. While I may have dug myself into a deep hole of sociological understanding, I find myself more motivated to engage in this discussion because I care. I care about the future of myself and friends. I care about the aptitude of healing on a social scale. Most importantly, I care about finding the empathy towards those suffering in silence because I know how hard it is to find justice in a world that doesn't fully comprehend the nuances of consent. In this episode, I attempt to answer these questions through the analysis and historical lens of masculinities, specifically the concept of hegemonic masculinity, which I will further define later, and how these dominating tendencies relate to masculinities and how that supports rape culture in America. It has been a deep-rooted issue in society that has only recently shed light on the voices of the victims. So why have victims' voices been silenced for so long? Where did this culture of boys will be boys begin? Let's dive right in. So one of the main theories that... um, we really developed and explored in this class was Raywin Connell's theory on hegemonic masculinity. And I understand that not everyone listening um, was in this class, so I'm going to throw out some definitions um, to really help you understand um, what we're talking about and to engage you further with this discussion. So when I refer to hegemonic masculinity, Um, The definition that I'm referring to is the configuration of practice, which embodies the currently accepted answer to the problem of the legitimacy of the patriarchy, which guarantees or is taken to guarantee the dominant position of men and subordination of women. So really to understand more of the, you know, context around hegemonic masculinity, it is that like dominating archetype. Um, It's not structured between one specific archetype in history. Um, Connell's definition really tries to portray this ever-changing, you know, dominating feature of masculinity. But obviously, in order to have a dominating, you know, perception feature and archetype of masculinity, 
Um, you have to have that other side of things. So the way Connell explains this idea of hegemonic masculinity is under the umbrella of this multiple pluralizing masculinities because there's not just one male role. Um, so she defines like four different configurations of masculinity defined by status and power. First one being hegemonic, which I already defined is like the most dominant one, um, really structured around the subordination of women. Um, it's a configuration that justifies the sense of like dominance and inequality. Then the second one, you have subordinated masculinity. Um, so it's understood as subordinated within each gender, each dimension of gender relations. Um, so like an example could be like gayness as a sign of, you know, not masculine. Um, it also can include some political and cultural exclusions and segregation, violence, whether that be symbolic, legal or physical, um, economic discrimination and more. So subordinated masculinity. Then we have complicit masculinity, which is configurations of masculinity that benefit from the overall subordination of women, but do not appear to be actively involved in the subordination. So they're benefiting from that hegemonic figure, um, but they're not actively involved in the subordination of women. And then the last one um, being marginalized masculinities, which is really the interplay of gender with other structures such as class and race. Um, and these are all concepts um, really theorized by Raywin Connell. Um, she is a huge figure in gender relations studies um, and has incredible texts um, about masculinities. So it's important to understand um, kind of what I mean by masculinities in this context of understanding Connell's theories. Um, she understands masculinities as configurations of practice. Um, so she takes herself away from, you know, sex role theories of being more biologically based where, you know, you have certain biology, that is what makes you a man versus a woman, that's what makes masculinity versus femininity. Um, she really is trying to understand it from a more sociological understanding. Um, and that goes on to include social practices um, and social meanings. So she really understands the nuances of gender as it relates to gender relations. So more so like relationships between men and women, among men and women, and she really tries to take this approach as gender coming from without. Those social constructions of what it means to be masculine or what it means to be feminine rather than coming from within. Um, so that is just some more so overall general context of what we discuss um, in the class and our understandings of masculinity kind of at that basis level. But the important parts of that that I kind of want to take away is the hegemonic part of masculinity because that is kind of like that dominant aspect of masculinity that I'm trying to explore as it relates 
to rape culture. So another text that um, Connell wrote that we read during the class that gives a lot of important context for um, my project is the social organization of masculinity, where she really kind of discusses from a social understanding of masculinity what it means. So, you know, there are a few important like tidbits from this piece where she really kind of like further develops what hegemonic masculinity is um, and how that plays a role in the social organization of masculinity, where she really takes this understanding of hegemony um, and hegemonic masculinity as like this sustained leader position. Um, Like members of this privileged group use violence to sustain their dominance. That's um, a way that she is like describing this bubble term of hegemonic masculinity. She further explains that violence is part of a system of domination, um, but at the same time is a measure of its imperfection. A quote that she says is, a thoroughly legitimate hierarchy would have less need to intimidate. So in a way saying hegemonic masculinity would not mean anything without this you know, portrayal of dominance that they didn't already have. So they're trying to, you know, incite this feeling of dominance. So another point that she draws upon is what she calls crisis tendencies in relation to masculinity. Her definition of it is a historical collapse of the legitimacy of patriarchal power and a global movement for the emancipation of women. Now, crisis tendencies is something that I will explore further um, because in my understanding of it, um, it can be a lot of these portrayals and acts of dominance of, you know, mostly male identifying individuals trying to assert this sense of manliness and masculinity through this worry that they're losing that. And a lot of this feeling of losing their manlyhood or losing this, you know, dominance and power comes from the other side of things as the feminist movement engages with a lot of power and starts to get starts to rise and starts to become a much more prevalent and supported force so it's kind of this way of compensating for this loss of power that men are feeling through different social relations that have been changing recently So now that we have kind of a more like basis understanding of some definitions and terms that I'll likely be throwing around, um, let's get more into the meat of it. So how do social control and dominance play a key role in perpetuating acts of sexual violence? This was something that I wanted to explore um, and exploring the concept of hegemonic masculinity 
as it relates to dominance in the social setting um, was something that was really important for me to really kind of begin this understanding of rape culture. So a pretty significant source that I utilized um, when trying to discuss this topic was Leslie Dara, um, her thesis. It's called Hegemonic Masculinity and Rape Culture, Negotiating Manhood at Canadian University. So it's an interesting perspective because um, she specifically kind of tries to take examples of hegemonic masculinity in fraternity and rape culture um, from the American context and relate it to the Canadian context, which I thought was especially interesting because obviously in my personal experience, I'm exploring the American context because that has been what is so prevalent throughout my life. But she really brings in a lot of important key points that kind of take this idea of rape culture outside of specific organizations um, and more so almost try and individualize it, understanding how this whole social order and how, you know, social configurations of masculinity support this idea of hegemonic masculinity and how male identifying individuals experience with and negotiate hegemonic masculinity in relation to their development of their gender identity. And it really kind of globalized this idea of rape culture. So I kind of went into a little bit of a spiral of sources through her thesis because one source that she utilizes frequently in her thesis is Peggy Sanday's Fraternity Gang Rape. Um, it's a book originally published um, in 1990, and it's a lot. Um, I really only explored the first little bit of the introduction um, and some sentiments that she describes in the first like 60 pages of her book, um, but there is a lot that has to do with the understanding of the male identity and how that relates to acts of sexual violence. Through this research, I kind of felt like I got to the core or like bottom or like beginning of an understanding of like sexology, which really put into perspective the public perception around sex, which is a very, very important aspect to understanding rape culture. So in this part of her book, um, the subsection title is, is rape culture biological or cultural? In which she tries to answer this question. She states that a lot of anthropologists have argued that human sexual behavior is rather sociological and a cultural force than merely a bodily reaction of two individuals. Um, so in a way, it's this divide between individualized sensations and cultural, culturalized meanings. So it's both social and physiological is her main point to this. So she really relates this understanding to the concept of sexual culture overall. 
she really sheds light on um, the conception of modern day sexual culture by going all the way back to kind of how early Americans um, conceptualized male and female sexuality, which is very, very different to the way that we see it now. She extends the conversation, you know, before the 18th century, she says, reaching as far back as Aristotle and Galen, um, where she says the men and women were basically alike, physiologically speaking. Women had same genitals as men, um, with differences that male organs were outside and the female organs were inside the body. She explains that the word vagina only entered the language from around the 1700s, um, and before that, the vagina was imagined as an interior penis, um, the labia as the foreskin, the uterus as a scrotum, and ovaries as testicles. So in this understanding, you know, we don't really see too much of like a differing between the two sexes as much as, um, you know, we would in modern day understanding of male versus female sexuality. And then along the way somewhere, um, sex role theorists really put into play in the minds of the general public that the biological differences um, transpired to differences between men and women, um, femininity versus masculinity, female versus male. So then later on in the text, um, she brings this understanding to colonial New England um, as she states that Colonial New England appears to have enjoyed a low incidence of rape. Um, She says, a woman's no meant something in Puritan New England. Despite the current definition of Puritanism that emphasized prudery, it was the only time in our history when males and females as a group were thought to have the same sexual appetite. So in this understanding of it, we can kind of see... You know, it almost feels like there's this equality in understanding of sexuality. Obviously, you know, not in the grand scheme of things, as men and women had very different roles in society. Um, Obviously, significantly different rights at this time, if we're thinking back to colonial New England. Um, But in terms of understanding sexuality this there there was a big turning point around this era especially in terms of understanding rape she mentions that if a woman was raped community officials tended to believe her because of the belief that a woman would have no reason to lie if she said no a man was more likely to desist from making sexual advances. And we can see that idea, you know, largely protected by the idea of marriage. So, you know, there could be some confusing aspects of that in understanding, like, where rape culture began um, and how dominance, like, really plays a role in it. Because at this point... It was almost just seen as part of the family structure as the male being the breadwinner breadwinner, and the female being that 
maternal nurturing figure. Then at the birth of the nation, um, there was, you know, this birth of the cult of true womanhood um, and radical change in the conception of female sexuality, she writes. Um, She mentions that the conception of male sexuality remained the same while the conception of female sexuality became more dualistic, where women were either pure or promiscuous, and the sexuality was either private and marital or public and prostituted. So in this realm of thinking and in this part of history, you know, males were expected to be lustful, um, but in this understanding of it, proper females um, were supposed to be this example of respectability and the wife and the marriage. You know, their lust was confined to this space of the marriage role. She explains... True womanhood gave women of means moral superiority, but its definition robbed them of a sexual appetite because they were supposed to keep their sexual appetite in the sphere of the home um, and the arena of marriage where, you know, if you had someone, if you had a woman who was more lustful and promiscuous and wanted multiple sexual partners that was too promiscuous and that was against the idea of this like chastity that that women held in marriage so if their sex and sexuality was public that was bad um and that kind of you know incited notions of prostitution versus if you have it in the you know, private based on the demands of male sexuality in the marriage role, then in that sense, publicly, that was okay. Socially, people saw that more as okay. And that, I feel like, and from my perspective, is very much where this shift started as focusing on male sexuality as a whole, and the domination of male sexuality. So, you know, men could explore their sexual prowess and nature, hopefully in the confines of their home, because, you know, it was still looked down upon to have sexual relations outside of a marriage. But that such private matter that gave this, you know, morally superior notion to women who were in marriages their sexuality was deemed as a symbol of polite refined america and those subordinate women were there to the demands of male sexuality sande then goes on to explain um like this split along the sexes as active and passive. Um, So she goes more into um, Havelock Ellis's point of view, which was one of the founders of the American sexology movement. Um, He glorified male sexual aggression as biological, evolutionary, necessary. Um, And then later 
as a development um, through Ellis and Freud, they defined the female sexual drive as inherently passive and responsive to forceful male seduction, even rape. She further develops this thought and said, Freud defined the sex instinct as a basic biological drive, which its active form was masculine and in its passive form was feminine. She explains that the new version of the true woman still said no when she meant yes, not because of moral superiority, but in obedience to her alleged biological desire to be dominated. So, you know, kind of neglecting this whole point of men dominating the field of education um, and intellectual development, there is this severe lack of sexual freedom allowed for women at this point in time in American culture. So if we're asking how social dominance plays a role in perpetuating rape culture and acts of sexual violence, we can kind of understand it from here in terms of, you know, the nuclear family role of the passive female partner. If the whole idea of marriage and being a proper woman revolves around being this passive figure that the man can dominate, that has to have significant psychological and sociological effects on people's understanding of sexuality within themselves. So in terms of the historical understanding of rape, we can really see how this intellectual bubble that men dominated really significantly affected the understanding of women's sexuality and how it relates to rape. Sanday mentions that Freud created a new version of the lustful female false accuser and that these ideas influenced rape law through the most important and widely cited legal treaties on rape of the 20th century penned by the noted jurist John Henry Wingmore. So it was really through Freud's discourse around female sexual passivity um, and also laws put in place by John Henry Wingmore that really sustained this image of womanhood that she needed to preserve her reputation and show that she's not aggressive. So a woman had to say no so that a man could take pride in his seduction and assure himself that she is not loose. She mentions turning a no into a yes by getting a girl drunk, slipping her a date rape pill, or using aggressive seduction was common practice on college campuses. And that kind of mentality stems back years and years. Now that we kind of have a basis of understanding in terms of, you know, that dominating role with hegemonic masculinity um, and also those historical distinctions between female and male sexuality um, and how that's kind of changed throughout time, 
I want to take a look at the emotional implications for male identifying individuals as they experience negotiations of masculinity, um, how their gender identity, you know, relates in the more social understanding of masculinity, and also their attitudes towards violence in society. So another reading that was especially eye-opening during the course was Susan Faldi's The Sun, Moon, and Stars, The Promise of Post-War Manhood. We're still kind of taking on this historical perspective um, to try and build upon concepts and ideas to understand current day rape culture, Um, so bear with me. But throughout this text, Faldi really kind of analyzes this post-war manhood, post-World War II manhood, um, and how that has affected the perception of the more modern day man. In the beginning of the text, there's this quote that stood out. It said, The men's of father's generation had won the world, and now they were giving it to their sons. Their nation had come into its own, powerful, wealthy, dominant, in control of the greatest destructive force ever imagined. So she's really eliciting this feeling of pride and gratefulness for the nation and nationalism that many of these men, the fathers, faced coming back from the war. And the sons, you know, in a way, feeling that sense of pride for them. The way that I understand it, their fathers promised them the world. And then when the war wasn't happening anymore, and there wasn't this sense of pressurized doing and winning and dominating they didn't men likely didn't feel satisfied with their work or the goal of work she explains how this led to some crisis tendencies in the late 1990s she explains that social psychologists and researchers issued reports on a troubling rise in male distress signals stretching over the last decade anxiety depression suicides, physical illness, criminal behavior, um, and a mortality gap that was putting an average man in his grave seven years before the average woman. So did men rely on this sense of winning and domination in the war to feel a sense of pride? You know, they're working for something, they're working for their country, and that was the general feeling. But then when that was no longer the case and men had to work with the world, with society, in order for it to work. I would argue the perception of themselves changed a lot. Faldi then goes on to explain her experience as she kind of like audits um, this domestic violence counseling group in Long Beach. Um, And she really discovers the notion of control these men crave when acting in violence towards a loved one or a spouse. She quotes one of the men where after he was violent towards the woman he was with, he said, I was feeling good. I was in power. I was strong. I was in control. I felt like a man. However, that feeling didn't last long. The man goes on to explain, only until they put the cuffs on. Then, 
I was feeling again, like no man at all. Faldi explores this feeling of control that men, that these men in domestic violence group possess in their personal lives because they don't feel like they're control in any other aspect of their lives. So I thought this would be kind of an especially interesting topic to explore in relation to sexual violence because is that kind of control that men are, you know, imposing onto women or forcefully pushing onto women a way to try and escape from this feeling of, you know, out of control and that they don't have any room in their life to be who they want to be, that they must survive as the nation or society expects them to be. The American Psychology Association um, put out these guidelines for boys and men, which was one of the texts that we read in the class. Um, And it explored a lot of different, you know, sociological, psychological um, issues that men and boys face. A main one being that they don't feel so able to freely express themselves. And back to the Susan Faldi piece, um, Sun, the Moon, and Stars, Promise of Postwar Manhood, she explains this phenomenon that the grow of feminism was this rage against this dominating figure that tried to put them in the box. So they knew what they were fighting, but for men... They were the ones to create this box. So how do they rage against that? How do they define themselves outside of the expectations that, in a way, they created? Or, you know, the male-identifying individuals and masculinity as a whole created. Faldi explains this phenomenon perfectly in a quote where she says, If men are mythologized as the ones who make things happen, then how can they begin to analyze what is happening to them? So there is this pressure to identify with the hegemonic male figure, the dominant male figure, because men are supposed to dominate in their nature, is essentially, you know, what a lot of text and understandings of masculinity represents is this pressure to dominate. It is actually what the whole concept of hegemonic masculinity relies on is dominance. So is there ways for men to identify themselves outside of these configurations or explore different aspects of their sexuality that isn't so dominant? That That's, on a sociological perspective, something that's really hard to answer. Because it takes masculinity from a cultural understanding, which is as a whole, a group, a society. And while individuals may feel like they differ from that, it's hard to distinguish yourself from that nature when you're in it. So now addressing more towards the groupthink aspect of rape culture... Um, specifically more in the college fraternity environment. Because although sexual violence and rape is done 
oftentimes by individuals, although gang rape does happen, how do we understand how social influences play a role in supporting rape culture? On college campuses, most of the time, this, these acts of violence are done when there are substances involved, parties, more of that social aspect of it, of trying to get a lot of people in one room. So why is it that we see such a significant problem with rape culture on college campuses when we're very aware that this is a problem? You know, like, what, what is the basis of it? What is causing this problem? Is it sociological? Is it personal? Is it psychological? I mean, I was about to say, is it biological? But, you know, there's been ample amount of evidence to prove that it's not. And if we're looking at it from a more psychological understanding of maybe why men act in these ways of sexual violence, violence in general, domestic violence, or even rape, I mean, there's a lot of reasons to that. You know, there are instances where someone is genuinely perpetrator and they're acting out in violence consciously knowing um what they're doing but according to a review into the literature on sexual assault perpetrator characteristics um most perpetrators make a series of seemingly irrelevant decisions that eventually lead to the commission of sexual assault Basically saying a lot of the times people don't even know that it's sexual assault and that's where this whole line of consent is really deeply misunderstood in a lot of contexts. So taking it away from that individual perspective on a societal level, what we have to work on is making sure those nuances of consent are understood by those who may be perpetuating rape culture which the majority of the time is male-identifying individuals. So if we are able to identify those aspects of rape culture that organizations or individuals keep promoting and keep engaging in, then we can start to, you know, teach a new way of thinking as it comes to understanding sexuality as a whole and respecting each other's sexuality. So obviously it's a very complicated thing because you have to understand it as this at this like individual psychological level, but then you also have to understand it from the cultural sociological level to really make active change in many of people's lives. And that comes from educating each other on what it actually means to engage in this kind of act with people make sure that there's consent and also heal wounds that cause certain people to engage in this without really consciously knowing that they are because a lot of the times pain that lingers in the subconscious or the unconscious can come about in ways of violence um and that's seen a lot throughout history
so obviously it's a very complicated subject, but a way to break it down is trying to understand it at the individual level versus the societal level and combining those in a way. I would argue that it's this groupthink mentality that if one person says it's okay, even if you're drawing the line between maybe it's not okay or maybe it's consent, maybe she said yes, maybe she said no, the groupthink goes to do it, is to act, is to that male identifying masculine feature to dominate and do and act rather than analyze and question because consent is such a nuanced thing you know there there are so many different ways to understand consent whether it be verbal physical like any there there are many different cues of whether or not sexual intercourse is consensual or not and it is in a very gray area especially when substances are involved but we are trying to get better at that we are understanding now that there's a certain level of inebriation and being unconscious that clearly defines when there is not consent there and a person cannot say yes that does not mean yes if you do not hear no That does not mean yes. So how do we break down these normalized actions that push this idea of consent away and act like it either doesn't matter or isn't important and that females are not, you know, allowed to explore their sexual nature in a safe way? You know, a lot of the time when we discuss rape culture, it has to do with derogatory comments. It has to do with notions that she should be looser, loosened up, and given some drinks to make her more willing to involve herself in sexual intercourse, or that she should be shamed if she is someone who is sexually active, there's just this intensified sense of shame and guilt in terms of female sexuality when you think about it in this heteronormative, you know, gendered idea of sexuality. Um, which to quickly note, um, I understand that sexuality is such a broad spectrum um, and is certainly much more complex than um just the female versus male characteristics. Um, But I am understanding sexual violence um, in a more gendered approach just because historically um, we have seen a lot more violence from men onto women, which is why I am talking about it um, in this gendered sense. So if we understand rape culture as those derogatory comments, as those allowed and normalized behaviors that deem female sexuality is bad and something that should be dominated over, it makes way for this kind of violence to be perpetuated and make young boys and young adult men 
and men, male identifying individuals, think that those kinds of things are okay. If their social organization, if the people that they identify with, the people that they trust, the people that they spend their time around say it's okay, then likely they're going to believe it's okay. However, where there is disappointing realities with certain groups of people who perpetuate this kind of activity and, frankly, immature behavior, there is hope and, as described in the text, diving in, the movement cohort, 1970s to 1980s, by Messner, Greenberg, and Peretz. There is hope, and there is a distinct group of men, um, more specifically in the 1970s and the 1980s, as described in the title, that have tried to put in the work and stop violence against women. This text specifically follows um, the Women Against Violence movement and really tries to understand um, what kind of role men play in trying to dismantle rape culture and protect against violence. The text follows um, several different groups of men that are helping in the movement against violence They are various groups from different regional locations that are really trying to involve themselves in understanding the female perspective and trying to educate other men on how they can do better and how they can help protect women against male violence. Members would often, you know, kind of define these groups as consciousness raising groups um, and It includes a strong therapeutic orientation as described in the text. Um, It says that these men grapple directly with issues related to emotional costs of masculinity, their own experiences with violence as boys and young men, and distant relationships with their fathers, their own fears, and insecurities around heterosexual relations with women. The idea of the, you know, consciousness raising aspect of it from my perspective is really trying to go in and analyze one's actions you know to in a way instill this sense of self-awareness to understand the why behind doing i think something that's particularly important to discuss when looking at rape culture is the why behind those actions So to bring it on a more broad scale, why do men feel like they have to dominate? Why is that instilled in this sense of masculinity in general? Is it because historically this has been the case and men want to live up to the reputation of their father? Is it because simply they want to dominate over others and the subordination of women has been long established throughout history? And I think this is 
kind of where it the conversation seems to spiral because there is no one answer to these questions. When we try and think about it from the sociological perspective, there might be more answers as to why, as described in the many different texts cited in this podcast and the research that I've been doing for this project. But when you think about sexual violence and you think about rape culture, it affects people at the most intimate, deep level of themselves. That starts to really bring in this individualized aspect of how one's moral conscious perceives different aspects of rape culture, such as whether or not an individual is going to be okay with their social organization yelling derogatory slurs. And is it through these social organizations that men can hide themselves and feel less individualized and feel less worthy and that they have control over their life to try and fit in with the definition of what that social organization should be? Does rape culture stem from the act of trying to fit in? I'd argue in a lot of ways it does. So how do we promote more growth in the group think of men against violence, of men who are actively involved in reflecting on themselves, reflecting on how they act with others and When I say others, I really mean it as like the opposite of others because when we think of masculinity, we have to think of it in relation to femininity and how it differs from that. And then in terms of, you know, different races, there's large distinct power dynamics that are at play between different races. And it is that othered aspect of things that seems to instill a sense of power onto this hegemonic force of hegemonic white masculinity. So how do we promote growth in understanding that that other aspect can give us clues on how to accept ourselves more in order to accept others? How do we find a way for men to control their lives, their individualized lives, and create a masculine identity around how they perceive themselves to be, not necessarily as a group or as a role that they feel like they should be taking in society. Because rape culture can be broken down but it's broken down by every individual that stands against rape culture, that speaks up when a derogatory comment is thrown at someone, that gets in the way of taking that clearly too drunk girl upstairs, to really take the time to address specific sexual preferences and engage in a discussion to make sure that there's common ground when trying to share that intimate moment with someone. 
this class has really enlightened me to a problem and almost kind of a root problem of rape culture is the lack of personal identity that men are able to explore in their lifetimes. The Susan Faldi piece shed light on the fact that men who engage in violence against women feel out of control in their own lives often. The American Psychological Association shed light on the fact that socially, men do not feel like they are able to express their emotions, able or allowed to express their inner emotions. And the Messner, Greenberg, and Peretz text shed light on the fact that there can be growth, and there is growth where men are able to freely express their opinions and have space in the conversation and allow themselves to be a part of this movement. Men play a significant role in helping to demolish rape culture and help spread awareness about violence and sexual violence and just domestic violence because it is this sociological societal pressure that is put on men to avoid these conversations and to avoid the wrongdoing but once they are faced with the challenge of talking through the problems and making themselves aware of the actions that they are doing change can happen because in a lot of ways masculinity specifically hegemonic masculinity is directly tied with various aspects of rape culture and the only way that we are going to have genuine progress is digging into the root of the problem and that's this sense of hyper-toxic, hegemonic masculinity that is trying to dominate over another. It is a very complex issue and it stems far beyond the individual. It is societal, institutional, and ingrained a lot in American culture. But to be aware of these problems is the first step towards progress. So to anyone who made it this far, I really appreciate you listening. Um, I know that this was a really heavy topic and a lot of different theories and texts discussed in this podcast, but certainly um, in an important topic to discuss. So thank you for listening. Hopefully I'll be back soon.